Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. How are you guys? Good to see you. Good to be with you on this warm, sunny, hot Colorado day, huh? Gosh, were the roads bad for you guys on the way here? Not were they maybe better than when I first got here this morning. Um, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever wonder about what the moment of your death will be like? Does that ever cross your mind? Do you ever, do you ever wonder, what will, my, what will my first thought be the minute after my death? Will there be a thoughts after my life. What is the nature of life, if it exists, after death? And I would say that this is the most important pressing issue that faces humans. Um, In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes uh, reinforces this because it says this, it's better to go to a funeral than a wedding. You know why that is? Because at a wedding, you're partying and you're distracted and, you, and, and you're not asking this most important question. You go to a funeral, though, and you're, you can't avoid this question. The biblical author is saying, this is a question we need to be pressed with. I just saw this weekend, um, and, I, and I haven't seen the movie, so I'm not recommending it. It's just interesting that it's, it's of interest even in our culture. There's a, there's a movie that just was released in theaters this weekend. It was put out by um, Angel Studios. That's the same <clears throat> group that put out The Sound of Freedom, so I'm assuming it, it might be a good movie, but it's called After Death. And it's this uh, quite well-done documentary exploring from people's experiences and do we have evidence that your conscious existence does not end the moment of maybe no brain activity and no and no heart beating and the moment after our death. I, um, back in 1989, any of you guys ever see the movie Dead Poet Society? That one with Robin Williams? It's, it's this um, movie, very, very well done. It's set in 1959 in this fictional elite boarding school called um, Welton Academy. And it tells the story of this rather unorthodox teacher who comes in and is teaching this group of boys at the school. He's played by Robin Williams. And he, he inspires the kids. He's teaching them using poetry, but he also introduces a different worldview to them. There's this one scene, I don't know, I don't know if you remember this, where he takes the kids out of, out of the class into the hallway of, of the school, and there's a big trophy case. And it's these trophies from kids who were students there 80 years ago, 100 years ago. And there's pictures of them too, these students. And he says, look at, this, look at the students, look in their eyes. So all the students are leaning down, and they're, they're looking at these 18-year-old kids like them, but from 100 years ago, they're not even around anymore. And as, as they're looking... He says, lean in further. And they do, and then he whispers something. He says, in the scene, he says, we are food for worms, lads. 
announces him, and then he quotes a piece of poetry. He says, gather the rosebuds while ye may, old time is still a-flying, and this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. And then he asks the question, what does this piece of poetry mean to the students? And he answers his own question. He says, because we're, we're, we're food for worms, lads, because we're only going to experience a limited number of springs, summers, and falls, one day, hard as it is to believe, each and every one of us is going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. And then he says, see those students? You see their eyes? He said, they're, they're not much different than you. And then he keeps landing on the word hope. He says, look at all the hope in their eyes. He says, that's the same hope you have in your eyes. But he says, guess what they're destined for? <clears throat> they're those smiles and all that hope, he said, it's destined for, and this is the answer, you know, he said, basically worm food. And then here's, here's the movie's answer to that problem. It's a, it's a Latin phrase, you probably know it. What is it? Yeah, it's a part of our folk culture. Carpe diem, seize the day. He says, make your lives extraordinary. Make them extraordinary, seize the day, because there's nothing beyond this. There's no hope beyond these few circles around the sun is the answer that's given here. And <clears throat> it's a compelling story, but it's a bankrupt answer. <laughs> Why do I bring that up? <clears throat> because this worldview, this philosophy, is very much in line with the philosophy and the worldview of this group of sect of Jewish followers who confront Jesus in our text this morning. They're called the Sadducees. And there's lots of different Jewish sects back in this time. I mean, at least a half dozen, probably more. They disagree about almost everything. The Sadducees are kind of interesting. They're, they're the aristocracy of the culture. They're the upper crust of society. They have the best position. So, for instance, they have the top jobs at the temple. So remember just a few days ago when Jesus came in and turned tables over in the temple? Guess who he ticked off? It's these guys. They're the ones in charge of it. But they have a lot of different views. We don't really know a whole lot about the Sadducees. We know from Josephus that after the temple was destroyed in AD 70, they just sort of vanished. The Pharisees continued to stick around. They sort of morphed into what's called rabbinic Judaism. The main thing we know about these Sadducees is actually by comparing them to Pharisees that we do know a good amount about. So for instance, um, when it comes to scripture, what do they think? Well, the Pharisees were the Bible plus, and the Sadducees were the Bible minus. What I mean by that is this. When you ask the Pharisee, what's the Bible? They say, well, it's the Hebrew Bible plus oral tradition of the elders. If you ask the Sadducee, what's the Bible? They would say, well, it's the Bible minus oral tradition, and minus every book of the Bible except the first five. The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those were the only ones that they thought were authoritative. Consequentially, there were a lot of things that they didn't believe in their worldview. Uh, they didn't believe in any supernatural beings outside of God. So there's no supernatural, um, supernatural beings on God's payroll, so to speak. There's no angels. There's no supernatural beings who are malevolent against God rebelling against him, demons or the principalities, powers, whatever. They didn't believe in any of that. And finally, they didn't believe in a resurrection. 
were worm food, as Robin Williams' character said. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Kind of lean toward hedonism, just have pleasure, serve God, and you know, be faithful, but this is it, baby. <laughs> Live it up, because this is all that there is, okay? That's the group of people that were introduced here. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to it, or the scripture will be up on the screen. Mark chapter 12, verse 18 to 27. We read, And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no, res- no resurrection, we know that, and they asked him a question, saying, uh, <clears throat> Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, that man must take, a wi- take the widow and raise up an offspring for her brother. So he's citing something in uh, Jewish law. This has to be done. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then they give a thought experiment. A thought experiment is you say, here's the law. Now let's throw an example in there. And let's see how this law works. Let's see what it leads to. Here's the thought experiment. There were seven brothers. First took a wife. When he died, uh, left no offspring. So the second brother took her. Well, he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. On down, four, five, six, seven, same thing, no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Okay, there's the thought experiment. Here's the question. In the resurrection, when they were... Now, do they even believe in the resurrection? (laughs) No, they're trying to trip them up. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife, all of them. And here's Jesus' response, his answer. <clears throat> Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you, neither, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, that's the burning bush, remember in Moses, that Mount Sinai burning bush thing, um, <clears throat> how God spoke to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus ends by his commentary, he, God, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite <clears throat> wrong. You know, I've never, you know, people put like passage of scripture on the refrigerator. I've never seen anyone put Matthew 12, 27 on there. I wish, I would love to see that. Just, you are quite wrong, Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 19, we read, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, leaves the wife, has no child, he must raise up an offspring for the brother. What's going on here? What is going on at this? In, in the ancient Israel culture, the there were two social safety nets for, say, a widow, for orphans, for someone who maybe they've made some poor choices, they've, they've got into debt, or, or maybe they were dealt a bad hand of cards. But these are two social safety nets for them in culture. The first one is leveret marriage, and the second one is kins and redeemer. A kinsman, redeemer, and leveret marriage, there's some overlap. Uh, there's similar kinds of a social safety nets. If you want to kind of see the law itself, if you go to Deuteronomy 25, it's just like the first five verses gives the law. Here's what you do, okay? If you want to see an example of it lived out, go to Ruth, the book of Ruth. 
Ruth chapter four has Boaz playing out this commandment from Deuteronomy 25 in the life of Ruth, who of course becomes uh, a, uh, in, in the line of David later on. But here's the point of these two social safety nets. It's to preserve a couple things from going bad, really bad. Number one, you saved the family inheritance, which is land. The, uh, the people are going into the promised land and God allots them by family. You got this piece of land, you got that piece of land. If you get in trouble, you're, you go you know, sort of like bankrupt. If you lose your land, all the rest of your descendants are displaced. And so this is a way for them to keep their land and not lose it. Secondly, this allows the family name to remain in the clan. So this one brother, he's never going to be blotted out of Israel's history. His name will always remain. There will always be a son who is son of this guy. And then thirdly, it's to preserve the economic standing of the widow in this case, because there are no, are no children. So verse 20 through 23 this thought experiment with the seven brothers and marries them all and all that, <clears throat> what they're doing, oh, they're doing something in philosophy is called a reductio ad absurdum, reducing an argument to absurdity. In, in rhetoric, you can do this. You basically take someone's thought, what's your idea that you have? And they give it to you, you go, okay, let me play it out to its logical conclusion. And if I reduce it to a place of being absurd, it's a bad argument. That's what they're trying to do with Jesus here. Jesus believes in their resurrection. They use the thought experiment, seven guys, one woman. And see, what they think is that they have him in what's called the horns of a dilemma. Either way he goes, he gets gored by one of the horns. If he says, oh, she's married to them all. Oh, so in the resurrection, she has like a harem of seven husbands. That's against Moses' law. And if he says, oh, no, no, uh, she's only married to the first one, then what he's saying is all the rest of the six marriages were not valid marriages. And he's gored by one of the horns of the dilemma either way. And they're hoping to impale him on this. And Jesus, the brilliant philosopher, brilliant thinker, smartest man who ever lived, he always splits the horns of the dilemma. And his response is this, verse 24 and 25, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you don't know two things. You don't know scripture. You don't know the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. That's his response. I want to pause and come back to that because what Jesus does in his response, he cracks open the door to the biggest question that we have. Is there an afterlife and what's it like? And I want to, he cracks it open. I want, to, I want us to step in there. So let's just jump past it and we'll come back to that. Verse 26, this is his reasoning with them. <clears throat> As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Here's my favorite bumper sticker again. You are quite wrong. <clears throat> Here's my question. I remember, you know, when I first read this passage, I thought, I could have come up with a lot better verse about the resurrection than Jesus did. I mean, the book of Daniel ends by him saying, at that time, 
Those who are buried in the dust of the earth will rise, some to everlasting glory, some to everlasting contempt. That's a pretty good one. Ezekiel talks about, can these bones live again? He's, yeah, you know, he's talking about resurrection. Uh, you've got Jeremiah talks about resurrection. Like, why didn't Jesus pick a better passage? Then This seems so obscure. Seems like you could have come up with a better one than just saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. <clears throat> which, which books of the Bible did the, did the Sadducees believe were authoritative? Do you remember? Just the first five. All those I mentioned, they're in the prophets. Had Jesus done that, he would have stepped into the same game that the Pharisees and the Sadducees play constantly. They just argue around each other because they're, they're starting on completely different places and Jesus sidesteps that because he's brilliant. He goes to one of the books that they view as authoritative and gives this line. Now, how is this convincing at all in any way? Well, when God said this to Moses at the bush, guess who had been dead for 400 years? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when he shows up, he, he speaks in the present tense. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. We say it a little bit different in English, like if I said about one of my kids, I am the father of Talon. I wouldn't say that. I'd say, I'm Talon's dad. I'm Talon's father. So let me put that sort of more modern way of phrasing he shows up and he goes, oh, I'm Abraham's God. I'm Isaac's God. I'm, I'm, I'm Jacob's God. Do you see what he's saying? He shows up to Moses 400 years after these guys have been dead, and he goes, guess what? Abraham's still alive. Guess what? Isaac, he's alive. Jacob is living. That's the message that he gives, and that's what Jesus points says. You don't even know your own scriptures, because God is not the God of the dead. He is the God, present tense, of the living. Now let's come back to Jesus' response. Like I said, Jesus kind of cracked the door open to this big question that whether it be Robin Williams is asking or you know, the Sadducees are asking or these documentary films are asking, we're all asking, what can we expect? And Jesus cracks that door open. I want to step into it. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, <clears throat> is it not the reason you are wrong? Now, here, here he's going to correct their theology in like one sentence. He's going to correct like four or five things in their theology. Because you don't know the scriptures. You're wrong about the scriptures. You don't even know your own. And it's not just the five. But so you're wrong about that. You don't know the power of God. God has the ability to raise the dead, even if their bodies decayed. For when they rise, the resurrection will happen. You're wrong about that. From the dead, they neither marry nor are given marriage but they're like the angels. Sadducees don't even believe in angels. Oh yeah, they exist too, you guys. He's correcting a bunch of their theology. <clears throat> so at the resurrection, or we might say new creation, let me just make some observations, okay? <clears throat> First, we, we learn this. <clears throat> they neither marry nor are given in marriage. That sounds like an odd way to put it until you think about... <clears throat> he was given a scenario of one woman and then these men. So he needs to address both women and men. Well, how do you do that? <clears throat> they neither marry, that's what men do, nor are they given in marriage, that's what women do. So he's saying it's the same for the men and same for the women. <clears throat> um, but they are like angels who are in heaven. 
humans do not become angels. Okay? We don't get our wings, so to speak. Even though nowhere in the Bible do angels have wings, that's part of our kind of folk culture. Humans do not become angels. And he's saying, we'll be like them with regard to the fact that they're not in marriage covenants with one another. That is the, the comparison <clears throat> that he's making here. In fact, you know, Paul the Apostle says uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, actually, don't you know that humans in their glorified state are actually going to be in authority over angels? <clears throat> so humans do not become angels. Secondly, <clears throat> I want to speak kind of from a pastoral perspective. Um, this reality that Jesus is teaching here, there are no marriage covenants, either in heaven or in new creation. I got a, a phone call from a family uh, friend of mine, and <clears throat> um, she's, she's about 91. Her husband passed away just, just about two years ago. And um, she said, I have, a, I have a And she loved him. She misses him so dearly, brokenhearted. And she said, I have, I have a question. I was talking to someone, and, and, and I asked, are, are he and I going to be married? Are, are, are we still married? And I think it was pastor, and he just said, no. <laughs> and she was so brokenhearted. And I thought, that's pastoral malpractice to do that. This is someone who, who, who deeply longs for this person. <clears throat> and it's not changing what Jesus is saying here, but the pastoral care side is just, nope. And there's no nuance. There's no understanding of what does that really mean or what does that involve. Here's the question we need to ask. Why is a binding marriage covenant needed in the first place? A binding marriage covenant is needed, you could say, for a couple reasons, but at the core of it, at the center of it, it's to raise children in a stable, ongoing, two-parent home. It's for procreation. It's also for the woman who is bearing the children. She's also more vulnerable, so she needs to know that this person has to stick with her and care for her. But the primary reason centers around God's command, because uh, do you remember when marriage covenant is given? It's given right after this. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Why do they have to do that? Well, God creates a whole earth. He creates one little section that's Eden. He puts two humans in there, and then he says, now go make the rest of the earth like Eden. Oh, and it's a pretty big place, so it's going to take more than two of you. Get started. Fill the earth, <clears throat> multiply, make the rest of the world like Eden. If that's the purpose, marriage covenant is to make that channel happen. In the new creation, when God has, a, God has people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, um, he, he, he doesn't need more workers. <laughs> that need to procreate, to keep building, it's, it's not needed any longer because there's also no death. So that simply hasn't been needed. Now, the, there's still a concern Go back to my friend who I was speaking to on the phone. Here's one of our problems. <clears throat> when we think of two people who are, quote, not married anymore, we think of a greater distance between them, don't we? We think of less intimate. The only people I know who aren't married anymore but are still here are people who are divorced. And there's a lot less intimacy, that reality, than before. 
But here's the problem. In heaven and in the later resurrection, the couple who were married won't experience less intimacy, but more intimacy than they ever had this side of eternity. Why is that? Well, <clears throat> think about maybe one of the more intimate relationships, close, close relationships that you have, whoever that might be with. Okay? Have that in your mind. Now, imagine that relationship where sin is removed. Neither one of you are selfish, ever. Think of that relationship, but um, troubles are gone, stresses are removed from that. Neither one of you are fearful about anything at all. All of your and that person's insecurities, gone. Any, any unhealthy behavior patterns that you two brought to that friendship or relationship, absent. I can't even imagine that. <laughs> I can't even imagine that. So <clears throat> what I would say to my, my friend is, you know, Kenny, <clears throat> you're going to have a level of intimacy with him you've never, you've, you've scratched the surface at because you had so many impediments to being really close and really, you're not going to be less than married. You're going to be more than married. The marriage covenant is something that's not needed. It was, it was needed. It's no longer needed, but you're going to, again, in that sense, be more than married. I'll give you one, one final concern. <clears throat> if there's no marriage, that means, let's see, there's no marriage, there's, you know what I'm thinking of? There's no sex, right? <clears throat> I, I remember when I was uh, in high school, I remember thinking, you'll be at teaching, Jesus is going to come back. And I remember thinking, I was like, don't come back until after my wedding night. Just, just, just please don't come back until after the honeymoon. Please. <clears throat> because I have a certain understanding of, of what's really pleasurable in life, Right? One of my favorite comments about this, C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles, chapter 16 of his book, Miracles, he, uh, he uses this great illustration that, that, that hit home to me, the reader, when he said this. He says, okay, imagine, <clears throat> imagine you're speaking to a young boy and you're trying to explain to him that the sexual act in life is, is the highest bodily pleasure. He says, and then he immediately goes, oh, so chocolate's involved? And he goes, no, uh, no, no. Um, and he's kind of scratching his head. Let's see here. <clears throat> and he says, it would be pointless to try to tell this young boy that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. And all of a sudden I go, okay, that kind of makes sense, right? <clears throat> Here's the reality. In eternity... God will not remove one good without replacing it with a far superior one. In eternity, God will not remove one good that you have now without giving you a far superior one, as in the example of the chocolate. Verse 27, Jesus gets what's becoming my favorite Bible verse. You're quite wrong. <clears throat> You know what this tells me? Jesus is not a relativist. Relativists don't say uh, that's wrong. They go, well, that's your truth. 
this is my truth, and I, I, I can't say what's true for you is true for me, and vice versa. Jesus is not a relativist. He rejects relativism in any <clears throat> form or in any stripe. And I think this introduces something. Um, I want to introduce a, a word and a concept to you because it's something that every single one of us are influenced by and we don't know it. It's called folk theology. <laughs> you have folk theology and I have folk theology. What I mean is this. <clears throat> there are ideas that are floating around in the water of culture that we're swimming in. You know what I mean by that? They're in movies, they're in songs, they're in TV shows, they're in jokes that we tell. They're just, it's just ideas in culture. It's the water I'm swimming in and I'm a fish. I don't even know it. It's just sort of, I mean, it, about life certainly, but about the afterlife. A lot of folk ideas in our culture <clears throat> about the afterlife. And we as Christians, here's, here's one of our struggles, living in culture, embedded in culture, and we are, we are supposed to be, that it's easy for me to uncritically, unconsciously imbibe those ideas. And I take like these folk ideas and I take my biblical theology and I kind of weave them together and there's a little bit of both <laughs> there. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just give you an example. I would guess that there are a number of people among us today who, who think that here's the Bible's story about uh, you know, the world story about how it's all going to go at the end. And it looks something like this. All of us leave here and our spirits go to heaven to be with God. End of story. Nope. You might be going, it's not. I, th <laughs> I thought that was. I thought that was it. No, not at all. <clears throat> the Bible ends not with us leaving here to be with God, but instead God returning to here. His space, heaven, and our space, earth, that they will be overlapped. They will be the same space. That's what, I mean, don't you realize, that's what we had on pages one and two of the Bible. Who is it that's walking in the garden in the cool of the day? God. What's God doing in the garden? That's his home. That's where he's living with his human family. Humanity rebels. What are they kicked out of? His home. Eden. They're expelled. There is now distance <clears throat> between them. So when we think of heaven, yes, heaven is real. That's God's space. That's where he is. That's where the dead go. The righteous dead go when they die. One day, that's coming back here is the point. New creation not disembodied heaven, is the end game, is the point. Um, New Testament theologian N.T. Wright, he wrote a book called Surprised by Hope. And he's got this great line. He says, <clears throat> heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Do you get his point? Heaven's important, meaning like, where are you going to go when you die, when you're disembodied? Heaven, yeah, that's important, isn't it? Super important. It's not the end of the world, though. That's not the end of the story. It's not the end game. That's not our ultimate hope, <clears throat> there's something that comes after that. The Christian's hope is not disembodiment or disembodied existence. That's Greek philosophy. I like a lot of stuff in Greek philosophy. That, though, gets brought over to us in folk 
theology. The Christian's hope is God returning here, restoring this creation to a renewed condition along with resurrected bodies for us. Just like Jesus had after his resurrection. You know, the one that sat on the beach and ate some fish? Also did some other weird things. It's in a room and then it's gone. It's not, I don't know what that's about. But it's a body. It's a resurrected physical body. And Paul says, we will be like him. That's all, all we know. <clears throat> when a Christian dies, they go to be, and here's the key phrase of Paul's, with Jesus. You're with him. You're good. You're with Jesus in heaven. But that's not the end of the story. You know, the book of Revelation <clears throat> says, uh, do you know what disembodied, uh, believing, dead, one thing at least that they're saying that he records to God? In the book of Revelation, it says the, the souls of the martyrs, he says they're under the altar, and here's what they're saying to God, how long? They're going, come on, let's get this thing started. Let's, let's get this new creation thing started. They're fully aware of time. They're living in anticipation of what's coming, which is new creation, which is God returning here with them, resurrection, new creation. That is our hope. Next time, let me, <clears throat> let me give you a little, uh, a little assignment. <clears throat> Next time you go to a funeral... Um, See how many times I, <clears throat> I just see how many times the word resurrection is used. I'd probably be willing to pay you five bucks for every time it's used because it probably won't be used. It's shocking. I know. I attend a lot of funerals, and I sit there and I, and I listen and wait for is is anyone going to talk about the resurrection? Talk about a lot of other things. I'm talking for a Christian. And it's so often not mentioned. Why? Because folk theology is so strong that we've lost our focus on what is our ultimate hope for us with this big question in life. Or even, even other phrases. Uh, phrases. Um, have you heard this phrase at a funeral for a believer? They're in their final estate. Are they in their final estate if they're a believer? No. Their final estate is resurrection, new creation here. Or they're in their final resting place. No, that's not what Scripture teaches. N.T. Wright, the theologian I mentioned earlier, he's got this great line in his book. He says, the New Testament, he says, it's not terribly concerned with life after death, but it has a lot to say about life after, life after death. Do you get the difference? Like, okay, I'll, I'll read it this way. The New Testament's not terribly concerned with life after death. That means your disembodied state in heaven with the Lord. It has a lot to say about life after, that's new creation, life after death. That's really the focus. And go look sometimes. There's very little about what our existence will be like prior to the new creation. We're with Jesus, we're good. But it, because that's not the end game. That's not the focus. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 19. He writes this to the church at Rome. He says, for the creation, what's that? That means the physical cosmos, everything in it. The creation 
waits in eager longing for the revealing of, and this is a title that's applied to believers, for the revealing of the sons of God. And not only the creation, we do too. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our what? Bodies. Resurrected bodies. And he says, <clears throat> for in this hope, what hope? Resurrection. In this hope we were saved. This hope of being with Jesus immediately upon our death and then sometime in the near future being given new immortal bodies that are free of sin, <clears throat> it needs to so inform us. And you guys, here's, here's one of the big landing points that I want to have for us today. It needs to so inform you and so inform me that you and I do not fear death. That's pretty big, isn't it? Because I think, I think a lot of us do. I do at times. But the challenge of Scripture is that I need to be so immersed in what the hope is in Scripture. I need to be so enraptured by it. I need to be so excited about it because, because I'm, 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 I'm bathing my mind in it. <clears throat> and I'm seeing what it really is separate from folk theology stuff. I don't, I don't think that gives a whole lot of hope. Some of that. Sometimes that can be a little scary. But it's the sure hope that has compelled believers to go into places that they, they knew they'd be martyred because they wanted to bring the message of Jesus to these places. I think of James, who was the, the half-brother of Jesus, thrown off the top of the Temple Mount, not fully dead, and they come down and stone him to death. And it says he, he was praying, God, forgive them. They don't know, just like his half-brother. Or I think of Stephen in the book of Acts when, when he was stoned and, and killed because he was preaching, we're told, the resurrection of the dead. And it said he looked into heaven and he was longing for it. That's, that hope has so, their minds have been pickled with this hope of resurrection that allowed them to live differently. Believers throughout time, because of this biblical, they have faced death with almost a strange confidence. I've heard so many stories from people. Uh, I know one person who, um, they were a doctor, <clears throat> and their story of coming to faith was because they were a doctor of a woman who was dying of an illness, and he's just like, you, like you have an interesting confidence about this next step. Can I ask you about that? What's... And she shared Jesus with them, and then through a series of different steps, he actually became a follower of Christ. It's a testimony to those who are looking. And that day is coming for you. That day is coming for you just as unavoidable it is if, if there's a pregnant woman and she has a little baby in utero, there is a day that is coming when that little tiny beautiful baby in this warm place is gonna be pushed through the birth canal. It's unavoidable, right? It's not a threat. It's just the next stage. And they're going to be exposed to a whole new world, a new reality of what life is really like. <clears throat> so to the birth canal of death will one day deliver you. And it will one day deliver me to a whole 
different world. And if I tethered my life to the person of Jesus, I know the one who will be there. It will be him. It will be the king of the universe. It will be the author of all life. And I want to pray for you. And I have two people in mind, specifically this morning. If you're fearful of death because you've never given your life to Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity. We're going to take communion in a minute. And that may be your first moment of saying, you know what, Um, I don't want to be on the throne of my life. I don't want to be in control because I can't control it very well. I certainly can't control what happens after this life is done. I have zero control there. I want to give my life to the one who does. Secondly, I want to pray for the person who would say, um, I've given my life to Jesus, but I still really fear death. And here's the question I would have for you, if, if that's you. <clears throat> if, if you've given your life to Jesus, have you given your death to Jesus? Because you may be in a place where you have, oh, yeah, of course I've given my life to Jesus, I trust him. But you still live in, it's because you haven't given your death to him. So my challenge to you and to myself is to turn my attention to be enraptured, to dig into what, it, what does God say awaits me? Because here's the reality. This is a charge that I think we all have. When it comes your time to die, die well. What I mean by that is as a testimony. You will die well only if you have saturated your mind and your heart in the Bible's teaching on the sure hope of being with Jesus the second you die and upon the future hope of resurrection and new creation. And that's such a good story. It's such a good reality. It beats this folk theology stuff any day. And if you're so enraptured by it, when your time comes, by the grace of God, you will die well as a testimony to the hope that you have because this is what you know. When Paul describes it, he says this, 1 Corinthians 2.9, what no eye has seen, he says, what no ear has heard, nor has it even entered into the imaginations of men. What's that? What God has in store for those who love him. Wow, really? Better than chocolate? Oh, yeah. Better than chocolate. We remind ourselves that death does not have the last word because Jesus had the last word with death. The author of life, think about this, the author of life became a human and he allowed his body to be broken. He allowed his, his blood to be shed. He died fully died. He went into the grave, but it could not hold the author of life. He defeated death. He defeated the grave. And he, dis- he secured for you and me that hope that allows me to die well because I know what waits beyond. I know that sure hope. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for my friends in this room who who might say, 
I, I am afraid of death because I realize I have no control over that moment or the moments that follow. And not just out of fear, God, but out of a longing for what is good and true and beautiful of all of life. I want to turn my heart over to you. I do want to step off the throne of ruling my life and invite Jesus to sit on that throne. And I ask you to put your spirit inside me to transform, to make me new to give me that sure hope which would ripple out into my life. Father, I secondly pray for my friends who, who would say, oh, oh, I've given my life to Jesus. I know where I stand, but I'm still afraid of death. It still really worries me. And God, would, would you encourage that person that in the same way they gave you their life, would, would they give you their death? Would they give it over to you, the worry, the concern about it, and live in a deep sense of trust that they are in your hand and are safe and are fully loved and fully known. And may they live out of a, a gratitude for that reality and a joy out of that reality. And Father, I pray for every one of us in this room or listening somewhere else. Would you empower us to die well when that day comes? May, may we follow our Lord who did the same. That's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you didn't receive communion um, on your way, and we're going to take that now, um, if you didn't receive it, just hold up a hand and one of our ushers will come and um, Make sure that you have the elements before we take it. I just want to be sure that everyone, everyone has the elements. In case you slipped by without getting them. Okay. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. <clears throat> Would you please stand with me? If you prayed that prayer maybe for the first time, I want you to be aware of something. Your very first act as a follower, as, a, as an apprentice of Jesus, is to take this symbol of his body broken and his blood shed for you. This, re, the reality behind this symbol is what secures this hope that we have. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed at a supper with his students and disciples, he took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this, what I just broke, this is my body, which it's broken for you. Take and eat. He went on to say in the same way after, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood in a new covenant. Take and drink. finals ended by saying each time you do this this might have been your first time <laughs> I would love to hear about it if it is each time you do it he said you proclaim the Lord's death in the past until he comes again bringing the space of God to this space that's our hope every time you take communion you proclaim what your hope is in amen we hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving 
For joining serving opportunities and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org slash connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.